Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. So there's a a topic I wanted to discuss. It's a subject that's been coming up quite a bit recently. And I think a lot of that has to do with the the coronavirus is getting people to stop and think. And the subject matter I'm referring to is that of Moshiach. Now, we're not supposed to predict when Moshiach comes. But I see what's happening is it's like it reminds me of those contests they used to have where someone would get a shopping spree in a grocery store. But the catch was it's whatever they got in their basket in a short amount of time. And so they'd be rushing through the store, filling up their basket. And I see that's sort of what's happening right now is I myself am picking up more mitzvot. Like I've I've never been diligent about wearing my tzitzit's katan every day. And I've been wearing them every day since. I wear my kippah and those every day, even when I'm walking around running errands in my neighborhood where they probably have never seen an Orthodox Jew before. And I found that as these, these questions have come up and I've had people ask me because I know maybe a little more toward than them, I've realized I don't know a lot of the answers. So I'm thrilled that my rabbi, Rabbi Yokoff Wolby, can be here with us today to answer some of these questions for us. So how are you doing, Rabbi Wolby? I am doing fabulous. Thank you so much again for inviting me back. I guess last time wasn't that dreadful. And I'm happy to be back here and happy to discuss this very topical, very important, very mysterious, very intriguing topic, the topic of Messiah, the topic of Mashiach. Wonderful. I do want to start with the following because I think about a year or two ago, we were in class and you made the statement that Mashiach would not be like some character from the movie X-Men. And I was thinking to myself, what a bummer. What a disappointment. I know in your mind, just someone that has the powers of knowing all the Torah, that's fantastic. But I sort of wanted that superhero aspect as well. And I have some evidence that may support my argument that maybe it will be like that. And I wanted to share those with you and let you respond to them. So one of those is that we know like when you study the Parsha regarding Moses and he sees the Egyptian taskmaster. And the text by itself says that he killed the taskmaster and buried him under the sand. But when you read the the Rashi and some of the other commentary on that, it says that he looked to the left, which means that he actually looked and was able to see the lineage that person came from to see if he came from any righteous people. He looked to the right, was able to see whether he was going to have any righteous people. And when he saw that none of that was going to happen, he said the name of Hashem. And it killed the Egyptian taskmaster and it buried that person under the sand. That sounds like a pretty cool power. And something else I read, although I can't remember where I read it or the rabbi's name, because I don't have your uh, Titan intellect. Although I'm hopeful, I've heard that now that I've been keeping a kosher diet for about a year, not eating non-kosher meat, that's supposed to improve your ability to retain and learn Torah. So I'm, I'm hoping my intellect will, uh, firepower will, will kick up over time. But I read that there was, the story was talking about not using Hashem's name in vain. And it was talking about a rabbi who was able to say, I think there's various ways you can say the name of Hashem. And he used it to cross a stream. And then it was talking about how he had to do Teshuvah for that because he used that ability 
for just personal convenience. So that's one thing. I've also heard when I was reading about how to put on my tallies at first, it said to wear it like a cape. So that's another piece. And I want to read something to you when I was studying at Partners in Torah. Every Wednesday night, the Torch Center at 8 p.m. Central Time, now offered through Zoom. I was studying my study partner, Rabbi Cohen, and we read something fascinating in the Zohar. And the, the rabbis are talking about how Pinchas was able to kill Bilaam because Bilaam was an equivalent prophet to Moses, just on the, the dark side. And I'm going to read you uh, just a little passage from here. You may not have seen this before. But it says, Pinchas saw that someone was flying in the air, disappearing from sight. He shouted to the soldiers, Is there anyone who knows how to fly after that wicked one? For it is Balaam. They saw him flying. Zaliah, a member of the tribe of Dan, rose and seized the dominion ruling over sorcery and flew away. As soon as that wicked one saw him, he changed course in the air and penetrated five layers of the atmosphere, disappearing from sight. And he goes on to describe this, how Pincus does something, yells something up to the sky, and then Billum falls, and that's how they kill him. This is sort of a reference to these, these Torah titans being able to have these type of abilities. And I would like to propose one more final piece of evidence why I think that might be the case. There's something that I learned for the very first time when you took me to the Mir Yeshiva's, I think it was the, it was the 200th year anniversary. And when, and when we got there, I learned something I did not know before. And that was that there is a black hat industry well in full force. I never saw the black hats being worn before. And, and here's my theory, Rabbi, is that one of the things a Torah scholar can't do is when they're out in public is look disheveled. Can't have stains on their shirt. They're emissaries of God. So maybe the reason Hashem wanted that black hat to be widely available for Mashiach is because as he's flying through the air, he doesn't want his hair to get disheveled. He wants his kippah on, maybe his head to fill in, and then it's aerodynamic. It stops with the, the wind blast, and that way that hat is there so Mashiach will be able to fly through the air like Neo from the Matrix. Comments? Thoughts? So I, when, when we talk about Mashiach being not a superman or X-man or uh, some sort of supernatural human, that doesn't mean that he's not going to be special or unique. What it means is that he's not going to be a different kind of human than all of us. You know, Moshe was also called a man. In fact, we just read a few weeks the Parsha about the episode of the Golden Calf. The Jewish people want to replace this man, Moshe, Ha'ish Moshe. Moshe, in fact, is called man, I, th- I believe, more than anyone else in the Torah. He's called an Egyptian man, Ish Mitzri. He's a called the Ish Elohim, a man of God. Moshe was the greatest man that, that ever lived. And nevertheless, the Torah is emphasizing, the Torah is reiterating the fact that he is a man. Of course, Mashiach is going to be a very special man. In fact, the Rambam tells us that he is going to be wiser than King Solomon. King Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, Mashiach is going to eclipse him in wisdom. And he's going to be almost as great as Moshe in prophecy. So obviously, if we're talking about a prophet, anywhere within the vicinity, in the ballpark, in the same league of Moshe, obviously we're dealing with someone who's just a regular person. What we mean by that is, when we say he's going to be a standard issue human, means that he's going to have a life, he's going to be born, he's going to have a body and a soul mixed together like all other humans. He's going to live, he's going to die. Of course, his accomplishments and the transformation that he's going to evoke to bring about in the world is going to be legendary, not going to be uh, regular accomplishments, but he's going to be a standard 
issue human. And when we talked about all these miracles, you mentioned miracle of Pinchas or rabbis crossing the stream. Uh, of course, Moshe has his share of miracles striking a rock and emitting water from that. That is a pretty unusual accomplishment by our standards. But, you know, reviving the dead we see, uh, the great prophets doing, uh, splitting the sea. There's a lot of miracles that standard issue humans do. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're supermen. It just, it just means that they are operating on a different level. Emotia is, like you mentioned, he's going to be putting the Egyptian down. He's going to kill him by invoking the name of God. That's obviously not a way that we could kill other people or that we could – we, we have no idea what that even means. What's he saying? What's he doing? What's he using? What powers is he marshalling? But what that means is that th- these are regular humans. They're not some sort of demigods or, or proto-gods or anything like that. And I think my point, if I remember it correctly, or what I could imagine I was trying to say two years ago, is that the Mashiach is going to be a human. Of course, he's going to be a remarkable human. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to be wise. He's going to be a king. He's going to build a temple. He's going to restore Jewish sovereignty and Torah sovereignty over the land. He's going to bring back the Sanhedrin. He's going to restore Jewish law. He's going to bring the Jews back to Torah, back to Israel, back to God. He's going to do a lot of remarkable things, but he's still going to be a standard issue human. So that was my point. Uh, yes, obviously, if he's going to do all the things that are on his mission statement, are on his agenda, it's going to be very hard to look at him like we look at every other human. But I think the point is, let's not mistake him. Even Moshe, the Torah, is emphasizing again and again, he's a human, but she is going to be a human in that same in that same model, in that same format, that same paradigm. Okay. So I mean the potential that he'll be able to fly, that's still on the table. That's a possibility because that would be super cool. Sure. Interestingly, we're told that he's, his preferred method of transportation is going to be traveling on the donkey. So obviously, he may be using some antiquated means of transportation. So who knows? Now explain what that means. There's because there's a lot of death to that statement. Well, all I know, I'm just being simple. You're, you're asking me to go uh, out of my comfort zone. But I'm being simple. It just we're told and Rashi mentions this, I believe, in several places. We're told that Abraham and Moses and the King Messiah are all traveling on a donkey. There's the same donkey that they're all going to use for their transportation. Maybe it's referring to some apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic time where there's no more gas station and people have to resort to uh, animal labor or animal transportation. Who knows? But uh, the commentaries have tried to explain on a deeper level, meaning that the donkey's a reference in Jewish literature, it's a reference to physicality. And in fact, even etymologically, the word, the Hebrew word for a donkey is similar to the word of physicality. And consequently, the inference is that Abraham and Moses and Messiah, the three people of this spiritual triumvirate, the three people that are most influential in precipitating the three revelations of history, the three people that are each atop, so to speak, the three epics of world history, these are all going to be people that are in complete control of their physicality and only as a result of that are able to bring about the great changes that they are going to evoke. So, Rabbi, my, my next question is, you've also referenced that there are going to be two 
messiahs, one from the lineage of Joseph and one from the lineage of King David. Can you explain and elaborate on that some more? So, yes, there are a few references in Jewish literature to the idea of a Mashiach ben Yosef. Typically, we think of kings, like the Mashiach is going to be a king, a political and religious leader. We think of kings that they come from the tribe of Judah. That's what it says in the Torah. That's what Jacob blesses Judah and Moses blesses Judah. And we know all legitimate kings come from the tribe of Judah, from the lineage of David, from the Davidic monarchy, the messianic line of David. And therefore, when we think of a king and a legitimate king, unlike illegitimate kings that come from any other tribe, like the Hasmoneans, for example, are historically considered to be illegitimate kings because they were Kohanim from the tribe of Levi, and therefore they have a different role. They're supposed to be the spiritual leaders, not the political leaders, not the monarchy, not the kingly class. That's only for the tribe of, of David. And therefore, when we talk about Messiah or Mashiach, and we don't add any more descriptors to that, that means someone, a descendant of David, who's going to be a king and restore the monarchy to the Jewish people. However, we discover in some of the sources, again, it's it's somewhat of a difficult subject because there's really not a lot of literature that, in, in the revealed Torah, shall we say, about this subject. There are a few mentions in the Talmud about it. There is a reference to a second Messiah, Messiah, the son of Joseph. You know, in the Torah, the two sons of Jacob, of Yaakov, who are kings. Of course, there's Judah, who's destined to be the king. But Joseph was a king in, in Egypt. So there is some apportioning of monarchy to Joseph as well. And the idea of the Messiah, the son of Joseph is, the way I understand it, is that there's going to be someone who's going to prepare the groundwork for Messiah, the son of David. Apparently, he's going to die in somewhat of a tragic way. In fact, when the Talmud does talk about it, the Talmud talks about it in the context of everyone crying, everyone mourning, everyone eulogizing Messiah, the son of Joseph. So apparently, he's going to be quite popular and everyone's going to love him and is going to really lay the groundwork, but then die in a tragic way that's going to really hit hard. And that's going to pave the way or prepare the groundwork, so to speak, for Messiah, son of Judah. Now, if you look at the Torah itself, Judah and Joseph, the book of Genesis, they really take opposite paths. Joseph is hated by his brothers, and he only achieves stardom once he leaves. Whereas... You know, Judah, when he leaves his brothers, he has that whole episode with his daughter-in-law, which is somewhat shameful. So it's interesting, just the parallel, that Judah flourishes surrounded by Jews, whereas Joseph flourishes surrounded by Gentiles. And that's somewhat of the paradigm of Messiah, the son of Joseph. It's, he's going to have more of a of a universal role versus Messiah, the son of Judah. He's going to kind of fill the Judah role, going to flourish amongst his brethren. But again, it's a very mysterious concept. I haven't researched it that thoroughly, but that's the general contours of that idea. Now, if I'm not mistaken, the Rambam, whenever the Rambam talks about Mashiach, most of his message is going to be about how we shouldn't think about it too much, we shouldn't worry about it, we shouldn't ask too many questions, it's not a good thing to ruminate over. And I believe when he does discuss Messiah, the son of Joseph, he discusses it in the context of some of the sages believe that 
Messiah, the son of David, is the son of well, the son of Judah, is going to be preceded by Messiah, the son of Joseph, and others say not. So he he seems to not take a definitive stand as to whether or not there will be something called the Messiah, the son of Joseph. So again, it's it's not such a clear thing in the sources. And in fact, in general, shall we say, the sources really don't give us a lot about the exact nature and the timeline and the role and the persona of Messiah, of any Messiah, not Messiah, the son of Messiah, Mashiach ben David, Messiah, Messiah, the son of David, or Messiah, the son of, of Joseph. So that creates a problem because if it's saying in the text that Messiah, son of Joseph, will die in some tragic way. That might be a hindrance to him coming forward. You're saying it's not going to inspire a lot of potential candidates to step forward. Right, exactly. So tell me about the timeline, because you've always said that the 6,000 years of creation were broken up into 2,000 years of chaos, 2,000 years of Torah, and 2,000 years of Messiah. So we've been in these 2,000 years now. And explain sort of that, that why that's all sort of built in the timeline there is sort of a window when we know, I mean, not we don't know a Messiah is going to come, but we're calculating each thousand years as the day of the week. And we're sort of now in the Friday, probably early afternoon, I assume. And then also go into after Mashiach comes, what does the world look like then? Okay, so that's uh, this is a loaded question. So I'll tell you what the sources say. The Talmud says that the world, or at least the current iteration of the world, is a 6,000-year world. And it's broken down into three epochs, a 2,000-year epoch of, of chaos, of tohu, or of emptiness, of void, 2,000 years of Torah, and 2,000 years of Mashiach. And that's the breakdown of these three eras. And by the way, what I mentioned earlier, this triumvirate, the spiritual triumvirate, Abraham is most associated with the first, or ending the first. Moses, Moshe is with the second. Moshe, of course, gave his Torah. And finally, the third is is going to be heralded by by Mashiach. And in fact, you look at the three Shabbos prayers, for example, the, the Friday night, Shabbos morning, Shabbos afternoon, it's modeled after these three revelations, revelation of God, revelation of Torah, and revelation of Mashiach. And these are successive stages of revelation. You have creation. And it's possible to observe creation and not see God's fingerprints at all. And comes along Abraham, and Abraham reveals that. There's a certain revelation where Abraham, he discovers monotheism. And it makes sense logically, even though there is nothing, shall we say, tangible or visual about it, but he's able to kind of bring God into the world. That's stage one of revelation. And that ends the 2,000 years of, of chaos, of emptiness. And then we transition into 2,000 years of Torah. Of course, the pivotal event of those 2,000 years is the revelation at Sinai, where God comes and appears in a way that is sensory to humanity and delivers to us via Moses, via Moshe, delivers us his will. And the fact that God's will lives here in our world, in the Torah, that is another stage of revelation. But of course, it's still limited to the Jewish nation and the rest of humanity is locked out of this revelation. That the of Messiah is the idea of God being one, that the idea that there is a universality of acceptance of the principles of what we call Jewish faith, that's the idea of Messiah. In fact, Rashi in his commentary to that 
very famous verse of, of the Shema, Shema Yisrael Hashem Akeinu Hashem Echad, when he explains it, Shema Yisrael, hear O Israel, Hashem Akeinu, Hashem is our God, in the current world that we're living in, it's only us that really have that belief, but in the future, Hashem Echad, God will be one, there will be a universal acceptance. That's the reference to the Messianic era. And thus, that's the idea of a 6,000-year world, that there's going to be this successive unveiling of godly revelation of the world, and it's going to be done in these three increments, and each one of them is going to take about 2,000 years until it's finished. And, in fact, the commentaries actually do the calculation for you. Abraham is born in the year 1948 from Adam, an easy year for us to remember, 1948. And when he's 52, the Midrash says, he discovers Torah. 52 plus 1948, of course, is exactly 2000. And therefore, what we have here is this transition. Abraham is ending one era, the era of, of emptiness, and is kick-starting the era of Torah, which, of course, is developed under Moshe and eventually the Jewish nation. And then... Once the Mishnah is written down, once the first component, major component of oral Torah is codified, that already begins the, the next era, the third and final era, the 2,000 years of Messiah, which is the idea of everyone else really being brought into the party to recognize the idea of God. So, and in fact, if you look historically at this timeline, what you discover is that around 4,000 years after Adam, you have an explosion of belief which is somewhat similar to our belief that happens in the world. You have entire civilizations, entire societies that were pagans for thousands of years. Suddenly, they become amenable to the idea of one power or close enough to the idea of one power behind it all. What we would say is the idea of of the Jewish God or the Jewish definition of God. And of course, Messiah, he is going to punctuate that. He's going to complete that to bring the world to universal acceptance of this principle. Now, when this happens, my understanding that the the miracles that happened in Egypt during the Exodus, the 10 plagues, that it's going to be like that on steroids. It's going to be that the whole world is cannot deny the existence of the Almighty. That's the way I see it. But again, there is a dispute in the Talmud as to what is going to change the times of Messiah and to what degree is free will going to be lessened. This is where it gets tricky. Is free will going to be lessened to the degree that there is no option of rejecting God or not? That's a very, very tricky question because the Talmud does say clearly that in some time in the future, there's going to be an elimination of the Yetzirah, of the evil inclination. He's going to be slaughtered in front of the righteous, in front of the wicked. It's a very dramatic story in the Talmud Book of, Suk- of Sukkah on page 52. Is that a reference to Messiah? Or is that a reference to some post-Messianic epic, some post-Messianic era that is maybe something different? Olam Abad, Lavo. There's other names in Jewish eschatology about eras that come after Messiah. So that's a dispute, the Rambam, he takes a more minimalist approach. He says the only difference between the world that we live in today, Olam Azad, this world, and, and the Mosul Mashiach and the days of Mashiach is Ein Bein Olam Azad, Olam Mashiach, Ela Shibud Malchias Bavad. It's only Shibud Malchias alone. What does that mean? Shibud means subjugation. Malchias means of the kingdom. 
The only difference between this world and the times of Messiah is going to be subjugation to the foreign kingdoms. We're going to have sovereignty. We're going to have hegemony. We're going to have the ability to be in charge of our own destiny. Now, someone may, some may argue that, well, don't we have that already now? You know, there's the independent state of Israel. In America, thankfully, the government doesn't impose on our way of life. Do we already exist in that messianic era or are we getting close to that? Maybe. I don't know. That's, uh, that's an argument that could be made. There are those that suggest that if you scour the Talmud, you'll find that the term Shibud Malchios, subjugation to the kingdom, can actually be interpreted as an element or a realm of the Yetzirah's dominion over man. And therefore, perhaps, this is speculation, but perhaps when the Talmud and the Rambam tell us that the only difference between this world and the times of Mashiach is Shibud Malchus, is that we no longer are subject to foreign kings, maybe what he's hinting at or what he's indicating is the foreign dominion of the Yetzirah or the component of the Yetzirah's dominion over us that is classified as Shibun Malchus, that's going to go away with times of Messiah. Maybe other parts of the Yetzirah's influence over man will remain, but not the component that's called Shibun Malchus. Again, the simple interpretation of it is Shibun Malchus just means simply subjugation to foreign rule. We're going to have autonomy. We're going to have hegemony. We're going to have sovereignty, and we're going to have the flexibility and the the time and and the resources to study Torah, to do mitzvahs, do will of God without hindrances. That's a simple interpretation, but maybe there is something there that even the Rambam, the more minimalist approach, does view the Messianic era as a time in which part of the the hitherto dominion of the Yetzirah is going to be diminished, removed, uh, or mitigated in some way. And that was my, my follow-up question, which you sort of addressed, but isn't it the, the more God reveals himself that that, in effect, is taking away our Yetzirah and therefore our free will to some degree because you, once there's no way to deny God's existence when he's not hidden, that, in effect, actually takes away the Yetzirah. Yes, uh, you would imagine so, right? Every time there's an increased revelation, there's going to be a reduction of, of free will. Now, there is a verse the Talmud quotes, uh, talks about yamim asher eim bahem chefetz, days without desire. And that is somewhat of a, of a mixed bag. Days without desire, days without yetzirah are days that are less meaningful. Because if there's less of resistance, you know, for us trying to do our spiritual agenda, then it, it matters less. It's, it's, you know, we're more programmed and therefore, we have, a, we have less of a say in determining our, our spiritual destiny. When you think about the story of the Mount Sinai experience, it's my understanding, too, that because there's just a tremendous revelation from God, he, he gives the, the first two commandments where everyone can hear, and then Moshe goes up the mountain. And from my understanding that the, the Yetzirah was removed once those first two mitzv- mitzvot were given to all the Jews, before Moses went up the mountain. Is that accurate? Well, the Talmud says that there's a certain restoration of the Adam pre-sin level of spiritual sublimity that happened at Sinai. The way the Talmud frames it is that once Adam and Eve sinned, the venom 
of the serpent was inserted into them. They got corrupted. And then comes along Sinai, and that is removed, that's cleansed. And then comes along the golden calf, and that again is foisted back upon them. They once again have to absorb the serpent's venom. So then after all that, when the Yetzirah has been removed to whatever degree, there's the sin of the golden calf. And it's my understanding that then you start to hear the Satan being referenced as an external figure, because I guess he's no longer internal as the Yetzirah. And he's sort of inciting the crowd, saying, showing them images of Moshe's casket, and that he's dead, and then provoking them as an external force. I guess sort of like the, the snake in the Garden of Eden, he's influencing them externally to still sin. Is, that, is there some reference that that's basically what's still going to create the free will challenge? Is that just becomes an external force versus an internal force? Yes, yes, I would agree with what you just said. That you're right when the sages talk about the Yetzirah slash the Satan trying to provoke the sin of the golden calf, it doesn't use the term Yetzirah, it uses the term Satan. And we would say that the Yetzirah was previously expunged at Sinai and now the only ammunition against the Jewish people doing the will of God is going to be something which is, which is different, which is the Satan. And thus... What you're in effect saying is that the sin of the golden calf is a perfect parallel of the sin of Adam in the garden, because both of them were done under the same conditions without a Yetzirah, and both of them resulted in the Yetzirah being put inside of mankind. So yes, a very astute point there that uh, that you're saying, Dan. So in the story of the Exodus, it says in the commentary that after all the miracles, the ten plagues, that only 20% of the Jews left and 80% stood behind. And again, this was in an environment after I would assume some of the free will was diminished because Hashem had just demonstrated through those 10 plagues that he controls everything and made himself abundantly known to everyone there. Yet they still decided not to go. And then I was reading in the Zohar on that Parsha and it said in the times of Mashiach, that once again, 80% of the Jews would, I, I, I guess the parallel is not embrace Torah Judaism. I find this conflicting because, again, you're having more of a revelation, although that occurred back in, in Egypt during the Exodus, but Jews are still not choosing to move forward. Do you have any insights on why it occurred then or why, why it may occur again when Mashiach arrives? Well, clear that, again, based upon the sources that you quoted, that there's going to be people who are going to be so entrenched in their way of life, in their attitude, in their self-perception, that nothing is going to shake that, and they're not going to have the ability to free themselves from the clutches of their previous identity. And therefore, despite all the miracles that they saw in Egypt, notwithstanding all the miracles— they were unwilling to leave, and therefore there was no way for them to join the Exodus, and they had to die. Now, what that in effect is telling us is that this is going to be, the Messiah is going to be something that we're going to have to contribute. We're going to have to buy in. We can't, we can't just say, oh, something wonderful is going to happen to humanity, and it's going to happen whether we like it or not. It is conditional upon us buying in and saying, we hereby sign up, and we're willing to accept what that means 
and what that entails, and it's going to be demanding and maybe too demanding for some people. And yet, it is a kind of a scary thought, the idea that uh, 80%, uh, four out of five people are not going to make the cut. It's, uh, it is kind of scary. Again, I want to point out that this is not something which is universally mentioned, at least, or, or accepted. Even with the Exodus, when the verse says, that the Jewish people ascended from Egypt, they left Egypt, Chamushim. So Rashi brings two opinions as to what that means. Either it means they came, they left armed, they had weapons, or it means they left only one-fifth of them left, whereas four-fifths, 80%, actually died. So maybe we could say that, you know, if we're going to extend that to the Messianic Revelation Redemption, maybe that is somewhat of, a, of an open question as to whether that's even true. But I will tell you that the Talmud makes a very quizzical statement about the generation in which Messiah is going to arrive. And the Talmud says the Messiah is going to arrive in a generation that's entirely righteous or a generation that's entirely wicked. And if I just told you this Talmud, you would say, well, I just got conflicting answers. Which generation is going to be the the generation that's going to bring about the Messiah? They're opposites. You can't tell me it's going to be a generation that's entirely righteous and simultaneously a generation that's the complete opposite of that, entirely wicked. Well, which one is going to be the trigger for for Messiah? So there's a lot of answers to that question. There is a question regardless of whether or not there are answers. Of course there's answers, but that's a good question. The Talmud seems to give us an exact contradiction as to the answer to the question, what generation is the one that is capable of bringing about Messiah? So one of the answers is, is that it's going, to be, it's going to be a very bifurcated generation. There's going to be a lot, some people that are very righteous, some people that are very wicked, and not really a lot of gray area in between. Uh, others suggest that what it means is, is that there's different realities that could bring about the same result. You could have a generation that's entirely righteous, which is one end of the spectrum, and as a result of everyone being so righteous, it brings about Messiah. And on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you have a generation that's entirely wicked. And in this format, it's not because the generation is entirely wicked, is we're going to have Messiah. It's not because of the generation is going to be completely despite that generation. And you maybe can have a, a million other kinds of generations that are spanning the distance, the spectrum between those two endpoints. What it means is, maybe what it means is that... Messiah could come in all kinds of generations. But what that actually means is going to be very different depending upon the conditions that Messiah is going to arise in. And I'll give this example. Maybe this is somewhat crude, but maybe it's a parallel. The Torah talks about the Jewish people going back to Israel. That part is fixed. The Torah talks about the Messiah coming. That part is fixed. Does that mean that we don't have free will? Of course not. The path that we use to arrive at that destination, that's in our hands. We're going to go back to Israel. We're going to have Messiah. The question is, how are we going to get there? And what's going to be the collateral damage along the journey? The Jewish people end up back in Israel. But we lost 6 million Jews in the Holocaust along the way. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that without the Holocaust, at least the way it played out, we wouldn't have gotten the state of Israel. Was it worth it? Was it not worth it? Again, these are questions that are way bigger than me to try to speculate upon. But does that mean that the only way we could have ended up with a state of Israel, with, a, with sovereignty over the land of Israel, is only via such tragedy? Of course not. 
we chose this path and we arrived at the result with the option, so to speak, that we chose. Does that mean we couldn't have chosen a different path? Of course not. We could have gone a much more pleasant path to get there. And who knows? Maybe there could have been a much more unpleasant, a harsher way to get there. Who knows? This is the path that we chose. That's how we ended up at that result. Messiah. What generation is going to bring about Messiah? Well, you have at this end of the spectrum entirely wicked. And we'll end up at a certain result, but it's not going to be so pleasant. And the other end of the spectrum we have entirely righteous end up at the same result, but much more pleasant, maybe with much more of our brethren on board and, you know, us not being so tattered and shattered along the way. So, again, it's it's complicated. Yeah, that makes sense because I always uh, reason that since God is outside of time, that he wouldn't have created the world saying, oh, these guys are going to blow it, but let's just go ahead and move forward with the creation idea. So he knows he's going to get us to the end point. The question is what you're, you're stating is how painful or pleasant that path is going to be. Correct. Yes. And that it's, it's, uh, the, the path is in our hands to determine, even though the end result is already predetermined. Now, what, what does the Torah say or some of our, our sages say about what the world will look like when Mashiach arrives? Like, I think you mentioned something that Maimonides wrote that the world would be in great financial abundance, but they're still missing something, and that's what drives them to sort of pursue spirituality and learn about their creator. Let me pull out the relevant quote here. I actually have it open in front of me. This is actually the very last citation, very last paragraphs that the Ramam writes in all of his 14 books. He talks about why did the sages and the prophets, why did they desire the times of Mashiach. It's not that they could control the whole world. And it's not that they could punish the Gentiles. And it's not that they're going to be lifted above all the other nations. And it's not so that they could eat and drink and be joyous. No. Rather, So they should have time and bandwidth to be involved in Torah and its wisdom. And not have any inhibitors, not have any distractions, in order that they should merit the life of Olam the life of the afterlife of the next world. And again, what this means is, is that even Mashiach is not going to be the end game. It's not the goal. The goal is to get to Olam the next world. And Mashiach is going to be a lot more pleasant conditions that we could utilize the time that we have over here to get to Olam because we're going to have fewer distractions. And then he adds, this is, the, again, the very last paragraph in all of Rambam. And in those days, there's not going to be any famine, and no war, and no envy, and no harmful competition, because goodness will be flowing so much, and all the world's delicacies will be as plentiful and abundant as dust, and the entire objective of the whole world is to know God, and therefore, At that time, the Jewish people will be great sages and scholars, and they'll know the hidden wisdom of Torah, and they'll understand the knowledge of their creator as much as a human can possibly do that. And it quotes the verse, that the world will be filled with knowledge of God, just like the water covers the seabed. You have the complete coverage of every inch of the seabed is covered by the water, so too every inch of the world will be covered with knowledge of God. Now, it's very hard to read that and not, 
and especially someone who has a little bit of a grounding in history to not read that and, and feel like we're kind of close, you know. Today, we're living in the time where there is the least hunger and the least poverty and the least war and the most abundant time in history. So if we're not close, uh, we're a lot closer than we've ever been. Again, I, I'm not in the business of making predictions and certainly not with Mashiach. And like you mentioned in the start, we're told not to make predictions about Mashiach. In fact, the Ramam, when he talks about the 13 principles of faith, principle number 12 is to believe in Mashiach. But part of that is to not try to make any calculations as to when Mashiach will arrive. So we're not making predictions, but we're just reading the description. And we know that today there are fewer people living or fewer as a percentage, people living in, in poverty and more prosperity and abundance and peace than really any time in recorded human history. So that, that's nice. And there's also a parallel between that level of financial abundance and people experiencing depression. It seems that both those things have coincided with each other. Well, maybe that's the void. That's my point. That was what I was, I was thinking is that it's like Maslow's hierarchy. You know, once those bottom needs are met and fulfilled, then we're still missing something and yearning for something. And that's what gets people to want to know God. Yes, absolutely. I would agree with that 100%. And I would add that my grandfather, blessed memory, used to say that when we look at morality in our society, it's very hard to be optimistic because people, apparently the way we see it is that morality is declining, not progressing. And therefore, how do we view the declining state of human morality in the context of Messiah? Because Messiah, we think of it as you know a spiritual renaissance, getting closer to God. If the world's getting further away from God and religion is becoming less a priority in people's lives, just universally, just as a, you know, statistically speaking, how do we view those two things as coinciding? And the answer that he gave is, is that whenever there is falsehood, the falsehood has to be marbleized with a bit of truth or else the falsehood will just self-combust, will just cease to exist. It's a theme that you find throughout Jewish philosophy that all kinds of falsehoods can live so long as there's a little kernel of truth within it. But once the kernel of truth is removed, the falsehood completely collapses, like a house of cards. And in fact, this appears in the Torah, like when the scouts that were sent to reconnoiter the land in the Book of Numbers, they come back and they say, well, the land is really great, it's flowing with milk and honey, but you know, they, they precede the falsehood by saying some truth, and that nourishes, so to speak. The little truth nourishes the falsehood. But once that little kernel of truth is removed, it has to, to collapse. My grandfather said this in the context of, let's say, the Soviets. I was born in 1986, so I don't know much about it. I don't remember the world where the Soviets were considered invincible. But people tell me that the idea, like if you told them that someone in the 60s or the 70s that the Soviet Union would just almost overnight just spontaneously combust and just cease existing, that was unfathomable because it was so powerful. It was a superpower. The answer, my grandfather explained, is that, you know, the idea of communism or socialism, or whatever the Soviet Union, the, the, the evils of the Soviet Union were built on a certain kernel of, tr- of truth. And once that was lost, the falsehood itself, if it's completely denuded of any truth, it just collapses. And therefore, once the truth was sucked out of it, 
it had no vitality, had no continuity, and had to right away cease existing. So similarly, if we see that truth is evaporating in the world, truth is fleeting, and people are getting less and less spiritual, and maybe going further and further away from truth, and the ideas that people have in their head are so ridiculous, and we wonder, like, how are we progressing towards the Messianic era, this may be the, the answer. The answer may be is that, yes, by pulling away truth from the falsehood, you're getting closer and closer to 100% falsehood. And once you have 100% falsehood, necessarily you have 100% truth because the falsehood itself has to collapse. And whatever replaces it is going to be likely rooted in truth. That makes sense. Before the Soviet Union failed, it was really just the dissemination of information they didn't have before. Because the promise of communism is that everyone would be equal, equally prosperous. Truth is, is that everyone was equally poor. And when Gorbachev came here to visit President Reagan, he commented and was couldn't believe going into a grocery store and seeing such an abundant amount of produce and food readily available. And he became very vocal about it. And once that information got back there, Everyone knew this doesn't work, and it just, it was. It was overnight. It was shocking. It was just, it was gone. And that's maybe... I wonder how the Chinese are going to collapse. Maybe I shouldn't be talking geopolitics, but uh, in, in I guess, in the light of this idea, it seems like the Chinese are on the chopping block as well. Who knows? I would agree with that. Does the Torah or the Talmud or any of the sources talk about before Mashiach arrives? Does it also give any other color on, let me tell you where I'm going with this. You mentioned the other day when you were speaking that the other points in history when plagues got brought about were like in the times of Noah. It was sexual immorality, idolatry, and theft. And I believe you said there was, I know that when the other time a plague came was when Balak brought the Midianite women in and that was sexual immorality by itself. And there was another period of time, I can't remember where, there was theft, and that brought in a plague. What, what was that again? That was the that was Korach's insurrection. That's right. Okay. And so when you look at the world today, there's so much good, for one. I mean, people, even though they don't acknowledge a God or they just believe maybe there's a God that just created the world but is not involved with us, you do see, I mean, if you look at all the debates you see now in the news, it's coming from a source of compassion, just competing views on what is compassionate and kind. But when you look at those three sins that brought about the plague, I would say sexual immorality is at a high point. Or the other day when they posted the stats for which news channels getting the most hits at their website and had Fox News at number one, and I can't remember the other ones. So I, I clicked into that, that article and then it went all the way to the source where they have all the website stats. And what was tens and tens times greater than everyone else was Pornhub, which is apparently like the Amazon of porn. And so that is so prevalent right now. And then you think of theft. I, I just read the other day that Iran stole like a, a billion, sent its way for a coronavirus support. And then, of course, the idolatry. You know, most people, even those that say that, that they believe in God, don't really believe that God's influencing everything and orchestrating everything. They don't know God at that level. So does that all have to get resolved first before Mashiach comes, or does Mashiach help us resolve those things? So we believe that Mashiach could come any day. That's what we believe. And therefore, necessarily, we have to say that it could come today. 
even before all these problems are resolved. But I think you brought up a good point. I actually heard this from uh, from one of my uh, one of my rabbis, one of my teachers, Rabbi Shalom Kamenetsky. He said this idea that every movement and every trend that happens in the world is at its root. It has some sort of redemptive quality that is associated with with the messianic ideal. So there is definitely a lot of truth to that. But the way I see it, just to, just the way I see the answer to your question is that Mashiach is going to arrive when the world is ready for him. The era is going to be concluded when the job is done. So the fact that you're outlining a world that on one hand has a lot of very positive things about it, more charity, kindness, just equality, just recognize the value of humanity. There's a lot of beautiful things about our world. On the other hand, there are a lot of things that still need to be worked on, a lot of areas that need fixing, that need perfection. And as to where exactly along you know, this chart, Messiah arrives and kind of accelerates the fixing, I don't know. But the fact that the world is not yet complete, that is indicative of the fact that we need someone to help us uh, fix it. So we're getting closer. The era is coming towards its conclusion. We're not there yet. And when Messiah comes, the way I see it again, he is going to be the point man to really amplify and accelerate this trend towards the good things that we have to really give them some oomph and to clear away all the falsehoods and all the problems that are associated with some of the goodness that we have in our world. I assume that Mashiach will be like Moses in the way that Moses, the reason he was at connected to God was because he had diminished his ego so much. He was very humble and he didn't even want to accept the role. Would you, based off that, suggest that Mashiach may be out there, but just not know who he is because he's so humble? He's out there looking for Mashiach as well? Definitely. Every Jewish leader is someone who's associated with humility. Humility, by definition, is faith. Because if you have faith, then you're humble. If you have arrogance, boastfulness, how could you really have faith? How could you acknowledge everything comes from God and still want plaudits for it? So yes, I I think for sure the Messiah is someone who is going to have those qualities and will be the leader that is revealed when the time comes. Every generation has a potential Messiah, maybe more than one, who could fill those shoes, who could fulfill that role. Now, for us to speculate as to who is going to be a good candidate, even though I have my own hunches, which I'm not going to share with you, but I do have my hunches, it's important to stress that the greatest leaders of our history are ones that were wild cards. And Moshe's a wild card. He's someone who grows up in the lap of luxury with Pharaoh. He's Egyptian or half Egyptian. He's more Egyptian than Jewish. At least you can make that argument. He's not someone who suffered with the Jewish people. He seems to be living in the ivory tower of Pharaoh. Why would he be someone who could identify with the Jews who are suffering? You make the argument. He's called Ishmitzri, an Egyptian man of the Torah. The Torah itself calls him an Ishmitzri. He's going to be the one to save us. King David, his own family, thought he wasn't a good candidate to be king. So the idea that we could be suitable or, or accurate prognosticators as to what Mashiach is going to look like, it seems unlikely. So I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. He will have prophecy, though, correct? 
Yes, yes, yes. It's not clear if that prophecy is going to result from Mashiach or is going to predate it. It means it is the revelation of Messiah going to bring about this new bountiful prophecy, or is he going to have prophecy ahead of time? Uh, we know today no one has prophecy, so we're told the prophecy ended. Uh, is it possible that with the arrival of Mashiach and the reduction of the eight Sarah, necessarily it's going to result in prophecy? That's probably the way it's going to work out, but again, we don't know a lot of clear answers to these questions. I, I would add what the Rambam says. The Rambam says again and again, and I mentioned this earlier, that this is not something which is likely to aid us in our spiritual journey, to ruminate upon this too much. He advises us to be simple about it, to say, hey, you know, we're waiting for Messiah, we're anticipating it, we're hoping for it, we're yearning for it, but we're not thinking about it too much. He, in fact, says, he says there's two pillars of Jewish spirituality, love of God and fear of God, and thinking about Messiah brings you to neither. So he does have some harsh words for someone who makes uh, Messiah, Messianic thinking, a big part of their of their spiritual life. And while it is the national destiny and mission of the Jewish people to bring about Messiah, you have to consider the Rambam's take or the Rambam's uh, guidance that this is not something which is likely to be fruitful to think about it too much. So I think that's probably a good attitude. You know, the Rambam organizes his work. It, there, there's a certain structure to it. There's a certain order. It's, it's written conceptually, by order of conception. So he begins with the most important thing, which, of course, is to believe in God. And the first book is all about the foundations of Jewish faith, to believe in God, not to do idolatry, to study Torah, repentance, character. And that's where he starts his book. So you make the argument that it's written conceptually from the most important on downward. The second to last thing that the Ram talks about the penultimate subject of his work is the laws governing Gentiles. And the very last thing that he talks about is Messiah. So the way I see that is the Ram is hinting to us that as Jews, it's more important for us to know what Gentiles need to do than what uh, Messiah means and portends. So that seems to be, you know, the trend that he says and he repeats again and again, this is something we believe in. We don't know the exact details of what it's going to look like, what's this revelation going to look like, you know, who, who are the candidates and what conditions and like, we, we don't really know. We believe in it and we anticipate it and we hope it arrives in our time. We hope we're there to, to witness, to be privy to this revelation. And we don't know if events happening around us are going to be things that are portents of Messiah. We don't know that. We're not, we're, not, we're not prophets. My grandfather was very wary of people pointing to a certain event and saying, well, this is a harbinger of Messiah, or this is a harbinger of Messiah, or this is part of the, the Messianic revelation, or this is the Hevli Mashiach, the birth pains of Messiah. He says, we're not prophets. We don't know. And we take the more simple-minded approach, know it's coming, anticipate it, hope for it, yearn for it, hope to get there, but don't make it a central subject of your of your religious and spiritual life. That that makes sense. I think if anything, the the takeaway from this conversation and those listening is that we don't know when Mashiach will arrive. And I think we always, me personally, I always work better when I have a deadline. You know, if I have to say I, you have a week to get this project done, when's all the work going to be taking place? Six days from now. So just sort of having that that idea that. 
as you mentioned, the merit for doing mitzvot aren't going to be as valuable after Mashiach arrives. So maybe this can just infuse a little energy into us wanting to take on more mitzvot, learn more Torah. You know, now is the opportunity where they're valuable. It's like picking up diamonds and those diamonds aren't going to be as valuable if we wait to pick them up after Mashiach arrives. So maybe it might create a little sense of urgency by us stopping right now and, then and educating our fellow Jews on this topic. If someone takes that away, then this whole conversation, this whole study is worthwhile. Absolutely. That's what I hope for. Okay. Thank you very much, Rabbi. I appreciate all your insights. Dan, thank you so much for inviting me back. It was an absolute joy, a pleasure, and a privilege to once again be on the Shema podcast. It's one of the highlights of my career. And for any of those who are not familiar with your podcast, could you quickly give them the list of your podcasts that are available? I'm fortunate to host several podcasts. Uh, one called This Jewish Life, which talks about all kinds of questions and issues in Jewish philosophy and Jewish life and the the holidays, etc. It's got an archive of like 400 episodes. It really is a lot of subjects that it covers. Parsha podcast, we cover the Parsha uh, each week. Right now we're starting the book of Leviticus, really interesting Parshios with a lot of very fascinating stories and narratives and ideas and, and topics and concepts. And that's the Parsha podcast each week. And there's the Jewish history podcast, telling over the story of the Jewish people. The Mitzvah podcast, which has been a little bit neglected lately, and I know that. We're going to hopefully uh, get back on track with that. Uh, Eternal Ethics is on Perky Avos. Torah 101 is an intellectual's introduction to Torah. And finally, all Rabbi Yaakov Wolby podcasts, if you want to subscribe to just one feed, that gives you all one in one. So that's uh, six plus one. So. So there you go. Excellent. And they're all five-star. Thank you, Rabbi, for your time. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to next opportunity. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.